don't give it like a the podcast platform of the finalist by Leopold Lambert. Today, five articles about Gaza on the finalist. July 10th, 2014. Infrastructural and militarized cartography of Gaza. As the military siege on Gaza, the force since the 2005 evacuation of the Israeli settlers, continue to kill every day, I go back once again to the idea that we should as much focus on the exceptional violence that affects many of us emotionally as on the normal violence that unfolds itself on a daily basis upon what has been legitimately named the largest prison on earth, with uh, 1.65 million inhabitants. Let it be clear, making maps won't save any life, and the production of knowledge during urgent situation is always problematic. Moreover, maps tend to be disincarnated and therefore carry the risk of a desensitization of the on the contrary of photographs and or videos that allow us to identify with situated bodies. There is therefore a need for articulating the emotional approach to violence, it manifests most of the time through the notion of spectacular, with a more structural and analytical approach of it, as I've been recently writing again. The map that is associated with this article can be put in relation with the three articles I've been writing during the last siege, Operation pa Pillar of Cloud, in November 2012. The first one was introducing a map that I did in a similar concern of sensitization. This map was one of the Manhattan Strip, only four times smaller than the Gaza Strip, under siege like Gaza was at that time. The second one was describing Gaza as a scale one experiment for the Israeli government and army to test how little can the strip be fed in power, water, supplies, etc. without triggering an actual humanitarian disaster. Finally, the third article was trying to think how a Gaza kid could picture Israeli since the only ones she, has, she or he has be, have seen in her life were soldiers or machines. The map associated to this article attempts to show at the same level the militaristic and infrastructural aspects of Gaza. This representation strategy is used precisely to demonstrate that a drone attack and the closing of a power supply or an access to Gaza both constitute an act of war. Their difference is only in terms of degrees, not in terms of essence. The spectacular military destruction of houses and the lives that they host that currently occur are particularly for their extreme yet localized violence, while the infrastructural violence experienced in daily life, power outage, lack of water, unemployment, restriction of movement, etc., are admittedly less extreme, yet affect the lives of most people in Gaza. The infrastructural violence joins the militarized one in the case of the hospital. Many deaths during the bombings would be avoided if Gaza's hospitals were supplied in essential drugs. They currently miss 40% of them. Whether the strategy of creating as few wounded as possible, meaning as many dead as possible, is deliberate or not by the Israeli army, 
The fact is that the deadly attacks often find the second wave in the absence of possible care in the hospitals. Inversely, the militarized violence joins the infrastructural one along the Green Line. The 100-yard no-go zone is enforced by armed observation towers and high-tech remote-controlled machine guns. The next 300 yards are only accessible by authorized farmers whose fields are situated within it, and the following, the following thousand yards constitute the self-explanatory risk zone, heavily monitored and controlled by the Israeli army. The two last types of areas characterized by the maps are the camps that host more than 520,000 Palestinian refugees in dense urban fabric and the former Israeli settlements. The latter were evacuated in 2005 by the Sharon administration and destroyed by the Israeli army in order to leave no infrastructures, no infrastructures beneficial to the Palestinians. Some of them have been offered for sale to them at pro prohibitory prices. The locations of these settlements are thus characterized by the tracks of their roads and their houses that will probably remain anchored in the ground for decades to come. No words, no drawings can describe the situation of being attacked from the air without any means for escape. The Egyptian, the Egyptian border has been operative on and off since the 2011 revolution and has been closed since November 2013. The only reason that we should keep writing and drawing the conditions of this violence is that the attacks on the Palestinian people, whether in East Jerusalem, in the West Bank or in Gaza, are themselves organized around words and drawings through governmental policies and military strategies. There is therefore a need to expose them in order to critique them at a political and judiciary level. This is what the Operative Research Council Forensic Architecture has been doing since last year's and what will be exam examined in the next article. July 13, 2014 Law as a military weapon, knock-on-roof tactic and other disingenuous arguments. In the continuity of the last article about the current Israeli dreadful siege on Gaza, this text will try to examine the ways that the Israeli army adopts legal tactics that supplies its supporter, how else, how else calling these people will go out at night and sit on steroid hills to watch the show of IDF bombing Gaza that supplies their supporters, uh, with a narrative that only a little of a little quote unquote of disingenuousness would transform into an argument. History has showed us that that if repeated by enough people and enough times with the same rhetoric construction, for example, Israel has a right to self-defense, Palestinians use human shields, only hating terrorists get their houses destroyed, these arguments appear to gain a certain legitimacy both at national and international scale. How else could have this deadly apartheid situation continued otherwise? In September 2013, I wrote an article entitled Law as a Colonial Weapon about the way the IDF had made use of its legal corpse to legally organize and justify the, the occupation of Palestinian territories. The, te the techniques described in this article, uh, mostly thanks to Ran and Alexandrovic's film as a law in this part, mostly applies to East Jerusalem and the West Bank, since the withdrawal of all Israeli bodies and settlements from the Gaza Strip in 2005. This 
current article therefore constitute a short examination about the way the law is also used as a weapon in Gaza, in this case as a military siege one. Before starting my argumentation, I feel compelled to say that I will be using the Israeli army's terminology to make a point about its legal tactics, but we should remain very careful about all discursive hints that would legitimize the very process of targeted assassination without due ter- trial conducted by the state of Israel and territories that it controls. The most important problem that the IDF legal corps, corp have to solve when wanting to justify the death of hundreds of civilians in their strikes against Palestinians' so-called combatants consists in finding ways to transform the status of these civilians into an ambiguous legal position where they would be considered as somehow accomplices with the combatants. The logic of geographical proximity is often used, just like the American drone strikes in Afghanistan, Iraq, Pakistan, Somalia, and Yemen. It consists in in affirming that bodies living in the direct surrounding of one or several so-called terrorists are necessarily involved with them. This is where the Israeli myth of human shield appears. I heard it myself in Israel from people who are said to politically lean towards the left. So-called terrorists would use civilians to protect themselves from strikes, and these same civilians would be considered as uh, so-called collateral damage. And we should stop on the true signification of such a phrase often used by the military. Gaza is an extremely dense territory. 4,603 bodies per square kilometers on the entire strip, which makes this argument very difficult to carry. But this disingenuousness has, however, no limits. The IDF thus used a more elaborated military tactic to intervene within the legal realm. Whoever reads article in the Western press about the ongoing siege on Gaza must be familiar with it, since such a press is always eager to be part of the legitimization process. The tactic entitled Knock on Roof constitutes in the five consists in the firing of a small explosive rocket on the, on the roof of a house, thus warming its inhabitants of the imminent destruction of the building by a more explosive bomb. The video presented with the article is illustrative of this process. The video starts with a warning shot and ends 58 seconds later with the destruction of the concerned house and probably some other around. The title of the video insists on the extremely short time that is imparted to Palestinians to evacuate their house. This aspect of the problem should definitely be considered. However, claiming that more time should be given would be arguing within a system that is profoundly legitimate to begin with, and we should therefore refrain ourselves from doing so. As shown by the Operative Research Council, Forensic Architecture, whose work is absolutely crucial in the, field of the, in the field of architecture. As shown in their investigation of an Israeli drone strike in Gaza in January 2009, the rationale behind the knock-on-roof tactic consists in demonstrating that the warning transforms the legal status of a given population. In other words, bodies who would have not evacuated their house or did not evacuate fast enough, as we saw above, can be considered as legitimate as legitimate collateral damage from a legal military standpoint. We could discuss on the ambiguity of the way the warning is addressed. 
is receiving a small rocket on one's house roof really universal language to say get out of get out of the house we could also write a philosophical treatise of the coup de semence the warning shot yet once again it would divert from the real problem that is the manipulation of the status of civilians that can only be affected by the civilians actions themselves in other words There is nothing an army can possibly do to change the legal status of a population it attacks. It, it attacks. Only the civilians' behaviors that does not involve staying in their own house can change it. What this means is that the warning, the warning does not change anything to the fact that each killing of civilians is a war crime that should be imputed to the attacking army. The use of disingenuous legal argument is however, is however fundamental to the action of the Israeli army as the only thing that prevents an intervention from the international community seems to occur at the discursive level. As long as there would be arguments that vaguely appear as legitimate, there will be a more or less explicit support to the state of Israel's policy and military operations against Palestinian civilians. July 14, 2014. Sirens in the villa surrounded by the jungle. Manufacturing ideological spectacle. Writing seems to be the only thing that doesn't make me feel completely powerless in front of the horror of the ongoing bombing of Gaza coupled with a vast campaign of misinformation led by the Israeli state and army, then followed by the quasi-totality of the Western mainstream press. Commenting on the deliberate or not misused of images of destroyed houses in Gaza to describe the situation in Israel, like openly biased media like the, the BBC or Fox News, I've been doing, like, like they have been doing, is not of my interest here. On the contrary, the imaginary that is conveyed by self-entitled liberal press, in particular in, in Europe, is, I believe, more problematic. The main basis of this imaginary consists in constructing narratives presenting absolute symmetry. They talk of the Israeli-Palestinian conflicts or of peace agreements. When presenting the destruction of Palestinian lives and homes, they insist, they insist on the retaliatory characteristic of such military operation. And despite the affirmed regrets of the killing of civilians, they directly use IDF documents and rhetoric to justify them. But symmetry can only manifest if the manufactured imaginary involves the notion of threat for all bodies living in Palestine, uh, meaning the, the region of Israel and the Palestinian territories. There is thus a need for an imagery of Israel under attack, an, ide an ideological spectacle, and we might want to wonder if there can be a non-ideological spectacle, if that, if that exists. Manufacturing the ideological spectacle of threat and fear is used by the Israeli army, both internally and externally. Externally, such a spectacle will indeed provide the imaginary of a nation under continuous threat, a so-called villa surrounded by the jungle, as former Israeli Prime Minister and Minister of Defense Ehud Barak famously defined Israel. The spectacle used externally is conveyed through images. It therefore requires a photographic and cinematographic labor to provide such visual documents that will inform the imaginary of legitimacy. 
The Israeli crowd gathered at night with portable chairs and popcorns on the hill of Stirot bordering the Gaza Strip, cheering each time a bomb explodes on Palestinian houses, articulate the role of the audience, external use, with the role of the actors, internal use, introduced in the next paragraph. The ideological spectacle is thus also internal. It consists for an entire nation when hearing the spectacular Pavlovian sirens to perform a set of patterns, behaviors that allows the daily convincing of self and others that the threat is real and ubiquitous. The fact that non-Arab Israeli all go through years of military service, three years for men, two years for women, at an age where one is particularly ideologically malleable, reinforces the seriousness in the performity of fears that will ultimately feed the well-known discourse to, of the so-called right to self-defense for Israel against Palestinians that are under its sovereignty only when it's convenient for it. Statistics can only inform an argument so much, but let's recall that in the last year, 263 Israelis were killed in car accident, none were killed by rockets fired from the Gaza Strip. At this point, it ought to be noted that this rocket, far from constituting a resistance to the military, militarized action of Israel, how, how could they, are fully part of the ideological spectacle manufactured by Israel itself and thus be considered as accomplice with what they're claiming to fight. The production of common images are also involved in the internal use of the ideological spectacle, as Belen Fernandez explained in her, in her article, Dead People Can't Take Selfies on Jacobin, about the creation of a Facebook group for Israeli people sheltered during the spectacular bomb alerts. The Syrians might interrupt the day spent on Tel Aviv's beaches or shopping malls. Israel is a villa, yes. It is an oblivious gated community capitalist visa with two giant swimming pools, one of which you can float while reading your newspaper which refuses to see that the so-called jungle, at least the immediate Palestinian one that surrounds it, is nothing else but the towns and their inhabitants that the villa's existence and its ideology maintains in a bare precariousness. A villa never exists in a vacuum. A villa materializes a territory accessible to some and exclusionary to others. However, on the contrary of what the Palestinian bourgeoisie and representatives of the Palestinian Authority seems to think, the jungle should not aim at becoming villa. There is a need to create a different, common architecture for this binational country that does not exist yet. July 17, 2014. Invasion of Gaza. Architecture's violence at work. While I'm writing these words, the Israeli army is starting its land invasion of the Gaza Strip, thus providing the conditions for the continuation of the massacres that this army has been undertaking this last week. Once again, the fact of writing about the ongoing tragedy unfolding in front of our eyes constitutes for me a way to insist on the infrastructural conditions that forces it, as well as enforces it to some degree. The spectacularization of many aspects of the IDF's military, mili militarized operation, via their Twitter accounts, for example, coupled with their despicable interpretation as a sort of show by an Israeli audience, as I wrote in the previous article, provide us with a comparison of the Roman games and the dramatic display of death. In the case of these games, the stage for the spectacle is ensured by the, ar by the architecture of the 
amphitheater itself that enforces the presence of the victim inside the circus, the doors being accessible only by the, agi- the agi- agent of death, whether executioners or wild animals. The doors to the Gaza Strip are not numerous, 5 plus 1 in Egypt. Plus, similarly to the Roman amphitheater, they open only for the asymmetrical agent of death, in this case the troops and vehicles of the IDF. The population of Gaza is thus prisoner from the walls, while the the latter's porosity is controllable at wish by the Israeli army. Architecture's power is fully exercised. Of course, the the walls that surround the land part of the Gaza Strip is not alone in the exercise of this power on Palestinian bodies. It is complemented with technological weaponry and surveillance apparatuses. And the last side of the strip, the sea, is a good example to illustrate how the confinement of a population to a territory can also be made in a less architectural manner. Nevertheless, walls remain the oldest and cheapest means to contain bodies within one of their size, and their use has been bastard by the state of Israel. Here is for the academic minute, quite inappropriate in such dreadful circumstances, yet evocative. The seventh chapter, the seventh chapter of Hollow Land by Eyal Weizmann, entitled Urban Warfare, Walking Through Walls, is now well known for the philosophical account that is made by Israeli officer of the way, about the way they theoretically consider walls. In it, Weizmann quotes IDF Brigadier General Shimon Nave evoking the walls that has been built by Israel in the West Bank. I quote, Whatever pass the politician can agree to build a fence along is okay with me, as long as I can cross this fence, end of quote. During this same interview, Navet cheekily claims to interpret the concept of smooth and striated space elaborated by Félix Guattari and Gilles Deleuze. However, the smoothing that he evokes here meaning the ability to cross the wall at any moment, constitutes the very characteristic of the privileged body who has full access to the porosity of the wall, like the prison warden or the the homeowner. This body is the accomplice of the architect. Here, she is literally given the keys to use the wall's porosity for her or his own purpose. The Israeli army is the architect of the wall that surrounds the Gaza Strip. It controls the wall's porosity, as if its surface had no physical effect on its body, while on the contrary, deployed full violent effect on the Palestinian ones. The interface between the Israeli territory and the Gaza Strip is therefore fully weaponized. The Gaza Strip is ensured to function as a prison, as well as an antique circus where the spectacle of death is conditioned to occur with no possible escape for the victim. The crime itself is not architectural, but the conditions that allows it to happen are. July 19, 2014. What is a home? On July 13, 2014, Palestinian Gaza-based journalist Mohamed Omer wrote the following tweet, I quote, Most difficult moment for a father. Split his children in all corners of the house or all in one corner and die together. End of quote. This heartbreaking question, in the context of the siege of Gaza, by the Israeli army, reveals the duress, a term that I learned yesterday from Anne-Laura Stoller, of the situation for Palestinians. 
What it also brings back to light is the fact that the Israeli attacks are targeting domestic structures such as hospitals, schools and homes. But what is a home anyway? Privileged imaginaries invite us to think that it is the perfect embodiment of safety. As kids, we play tag, and when reaching the zone where the rules prevent us from being tagged, we scream, home! Later in our lives, we run away from someone in the street, reach home, lock behind us, and take the deep breaths that signifies that we are safe. Of course, as, a, as I have argued many times, this safety comes at a social price, as the walls that form, the, that form her home are almost always materiali materializing the regime of private property which imposes a form of violence in the exclusivity it gives to somebody having access to it and exclude others. And still, we all need a home where we can feel safe and appropriate. Hence the tragedy of homelessness as described in a past article. The necessary association of safety and home is however a luxury that many people in the world cannot afford. The Palestinians may be less than anybody else. Many people of the West Bank see their homes raided by the IDF in the middle of the night, waking up all inhabitants with guns in their face, then leaving with men and boys arrested until further notice. Gaza's homes do not even see their precautionary presence of bodies on site, but are subjected to F-16 fighter jets and drones bombs that leads to Omer's tragic dilemma. How does the paradigmatic architecture of the civilian realm thus become the favorite target of military bombing? The Israeli army itself asks the question, when is a house a home? This architectural section poster, prepared by the IDF as a propaganda kit for everyone willing to, to use disingenuousness to support its bombing, attempts to propagate the demagogic argument of human shields that embodies a national alibi of the massacre it organizes. In this regard, it ought to be noted that no one serious seems to believe in the rationale of this argument. Otherwise, question about whether the IDF can then legitimately kill the so-called hostages with the alleged hostage-takers would have emerged. On Al Jazeera, Nicola Perugini and Neve Gordon make a useful synthesis of the propaganda means created by the IDF to sp spread this simulacrum of argument. As we saw in a recent article, the goal of the IDF consists in transforming legal statuses from a civilian body to a so-called warned potential collateral damage, and in the case of a house, from the status of home to the one of an enemy military building. This strategy is, however, purely ideological, as we know thanks to the work of Eyal Weizmann and his original work on forensic architecture, the internal calculation made by the Israeli army and the American one in its targeted assassination is not as much a question of legal status, but rather the, cal the calculated amount of acceptable civilian killings for each military objective. And that also includes the rate of mistaken objectives. When looking at the ongoing massacre, it is difficult to, it's, it is difficult to attach any importance to that which is not directly about human death. Yet, with this question, what is a home, we should also consider the attack on that which is not alive. This question bring, brings us back to a form of collective punishment favored by the Israeli army, home demolitions. As I wrote two weeks ago, the demolition of home, by whatever means, 
is the destruction of a collective, whether familial, local, or other memory, a collective memory. Depending on the means of destruction, whether administrative demolition or bombing, the homeowner will or will not have time to take objects and furniture with them that will help to reconstitute this collective memory. Yet, either way, part of it is inexorably inscribed in the wall and space of the home itself. Moreover, the act of destruction itself constitutes a violent operation that not only materially shatters this collective memory, but also turns the home literally inside out, thus making apparent that that which was only visible to family and friends. Such apparition of the private in the public realms is described by Ariela Azoulay in her essay When a Demolished Home's House Becomes a Public Square for Anne-Laura Stoller's Imperial Debris, published at Duke University Press in 2013. Through it, Azoulay does not only describe the actual demolition of Palestinian homes in Gaza, but also the desacralization of their privacy by Israeli soldiers when they occupy one. She talks of the sanctity of the home. This sanctity is profanated by the bulldozer, the bomb, the soldier. Once again, this profanation is not much compared to the sanctity of life itself, which should be the one priority of the struggle. Yet the fact that the profanation of Palestinian home sanctity has been organized and implemented since 1947, it is therefore important to insist on this aspect of the militarized violence developed knowingly by the Israeli army.